Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Continuing our way through the text, we're going to pick it up this morning in verse 12. Before we jump in, as is our custom, we want to just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to help us to see what's here and then to guide us into obedience. So would you please bow with me in prayer. Father, once again we come before you. Lord, undoubtedly all of us experience a great many different things as we go through our week day by day, hour by hour. For some of us, we know the joys and happiness of just untold blessings. Everything seems to be going perfectly for us. And that the very next week, Lord, we will experience trials and difficulties. From the ups to the lows, from the mountaintops to the valley bottoms, God, we are tempted at all times to question your presence. And we struggle with how to interpret our experiences. As we look at your word this morning, I pray, Father, that you would show us once again the word to understand the world around us, not by our own understanding, but by you, Lord, by what you say. God, as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you would show us once again that not only our testimony, not only the gospel that we share with those around us, but our very lives, everything that we have, every experience that we no. I pray, Lord, that we would understand it through your word, from your word, for the sake of faith, to a lifestyle that is lived in faith. Remind your church of that this morning, I pray, by your spirit. Open our eyes to see what Peter has to say this morning in this first Christian sermon. May your people walk in obedience. We love you, God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to just do me a favor this morning. And I want you, you don't necessarily have to close your eyes, but I want you to imagine something for just a moment. I want you to think of a church that you've been a part of. It could be this church. It could be a church that you knew growing up as a child. Any church where you felt loved, where you, where you had a, a, just a wonderful time of fellowship. For some of you, maybe, maybe that's never been the case. Maybe for some of us, this is our first time to walk into a church this morning and we've only had negative experiences, but yet somehow we're here and we're searching. Whatever your story may be, whatever the case may be with you, I want you just to imagine a church for a moment. And when I say church, I'm not talking about the building, I'm talking about the people. In fact, I think for our purposes this morning, as you're imagining this church that you may have been a part of or that you're hoping to become a part of, I want you to take the building away. In fact, I want you to take the instruments away. I want you to take the worship, all the instrumentation, all of the gadgetry that goes along with that. I want you to strip that away. Forget about the pews, in fact. Forget about the building. Imagine these people are gathered together, standing out in a grassy field somewhere. Not a soggy, wet, muddy field like what we have today, but we can imagine a beautiful spring field with the sun shining down. I want you to forget about, even for just a moment, baptism, as important as that is, even communion, as important as that is. And I want you to just think about these people, this church, standing in this field. Now I want to ask you a question. What do we need to add to this group of people 
in order to get them to grow, both numerically as well as spiritually. What is the first thing that comes into your mind when I ask you that question? As you imagine this group of people standing out here in the field. Some of us, immediately the first thought that we have is, well, we need a rock and worship band. We need to get people with instruments, with, uh, you know, an amplifier plugged in, ready to go. For some of us, you're thinking, we live in Canada, Clay Camp. It's cold here in the winter. We need a building. We can't stay in that grassy field forever. For some of you, you might be thinking, well, we need to have people who get together in small groups and who are really good friends with each other and enjoy each other's company. For some of you, you might be thinking, we need a prayer service. We need to get together and pray. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with worship. There's nothing wrong with fellowship. There's nothing wrong with a building either. It's a very, necess- it's a very necessary thing. This coming from a church planter. But that's not what we need to grow the church numerically and spiritually. When we encounter this church in the book of Acts, when we see this group of 120 people baptized with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, when we see them emerge from out behind closed doors, we see, church, we see God using this church and using the leadership of these 12 apostles to do something amazing. He's going to grow the church numerically. On this day, we're going to find at the end of the chapter, 3,000 souls are added numerically to the church. But something even more powerful is taking place as we look at this first Christian sermon. Not only is God adding numerically to the number of the disciples, but Peter, out of the word of God, is deepening the faith of those who are with them as well as changing the understanding of the experience among those that are observing. Look with me now. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. Of course, you'll recall last week, Pastor Ryan preached on the coming of Pentecost, on the, on the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and the tongues of fire, and the great rushing wind, sound of the wind, and, and a whole multitude of people came together, and they started to speak in tongues. Every person heard them speaking wonderful and glorious things about God in their own language. And we pick it up here now in verse 12. It says they come together, and it says they were all amazed, and look at this, perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? There's a group of people, we don't know how large it is, we can be confident that not everyone that was there got saved that day, not everyone committed their lives to Christ and got baptized. We know that at least 3,000 did, which means that there was probably a group of people that gathered together to hear this sermon, probably numbering more than 3,000, almost certainly numbering more than 3,000, probably 5,000, 6,000, we can't be sure. A large group of people come together. They hear what's going on. They hear these guys preaching the gospel in their own languages, and the scripture says that they were confused by the experience. The word there is perplexed. They didn't know what to make of it. But there is another group that's there, and they don't know what to make of it, but look at their response. Very next verse, verse 13. Others, mocking, said... They are filled with new wine. They've been drinking. And, of course, Peter's going to respond and say, look, it's only 9 a.m. It's only the third hour of the day. It's too early to be drinking. But you see these two groups. An unusual thing has happened. They've experienced something. They've encountered a strange phenomenon. And they don't know what to do with it. The first group says, 
how are we to understand this? What does this mean? And the second group says, it's just a joke. It's something for us to laugh at. It's a circus show. There's something going on here, okay, but you know what? With me and my buddies, we're not going to take it too seriously. We're going to laugh at it. We're going to make suggestions about it. We're going to mock it. The first group is curious, but the second group is dismissive. Now, which is you this morning? As we come together to look at the Word of God, which we do every single week, as we come to preach the Bible, do you come before the Word of God seeking to understand it? Is there confusion seeking understanding for the purposes of faith? Or do you come this morning reserving judgment until the end, considering whether or not this is going to be something you should take seriously, but ultimately you're going to hold that in your back pocket until afterwards? Do we approach the Word of God with a desire to understand in order to obey, or is our faith like the mocker's faith? Well, we're going to hear, but we're going to pick and choose as we see fit. I pray that you're in the first group. I pray that as we look at the Word of God, as we do every week from week to week, that our approach to it would be understanding that seeks to obey in faith. The statement is made, what does this mean? And it's a perfectly good question to ask. I'm sure in your life, as you've uh, grown up, you've encountered things that you couldn't quite fully explain. I remember watching a magician on TV as a kid, David Copperfield, making the Statue of Liberty disappear on TV which is actually on TV a relatively easy thing to do these days. But I remember as a little kid watching this thing, uh, I was maybe in grade two or grade three at the time, and thinking, this is unbelievable. This makes no sense. And of course, he didn't actually make it disappear. It's just a slate of hand. It's just smoke and mirrors. It's just gadgetry and wizardry. We've all been to the circus. We've all seen things that we couldn't quite understand. And when we saw those things, if it was our first experience, if it was our first encounter, we were probably really curious. We wanted to know. And then as we grew older, we grew jaded, we became more cynical, and we find ourselves sliding into the second group where we may not be able to fully explain what it is that we're seeing, but we know we can dismiss it. For these individuals gathered here at Pentecost, there is both groups. They're seeing something unusual, but they're dismissing it. The other groups see something unusual and they want to know more. The Christian philosopher John Frame says that when it comes to belief, when it comes to what it is that we know or what knowledge is, what constitutes knowledge, he offers a definition which is widely accepted by philosophers all across the spectrum, whether they be Christian philosophers or unbelieving philosophers. The idea is that knowledge, when we know something, that what makes up knowledge is essentially true, justified belief. Okay? True, justified belief. And that's what Peter is about to give to them right now. Let's just unpack that definition for a second. I could say to you that I know that John Doe lives in Atlanta, Georgia. That I have this belief that he lives there. Now, is there a John Doe living in Atlanta, Georgia? It's such a common name in the southern part of the United States that undoubtedly there is a John Doe living in Atlanta, Georgia. And I could say to you that I know that there's a John Doe living in 
Atlanta, Georgia. That's my belief, okay? I hold that to be true. That's a piece of data that's in my brain that I just know based on the fact that there's so many John Doe's and John Smith's and Sean Lee's living in the southern United States that I could pick any one of those three names and I could say one of those guys is living in Atlanta, Georgia. And I just know that based on statistical empirical evidence from all the surveys and all the statistics that's been throwing out there. But is that true knowledge? Does that constitute true knowledge? It's a belief I have. Sure, it's subjective. It's something that I hold inside of myself. But is it true? If we were to pull out the phone book of everybody living within the city limits of Atlanta, Georgia, would we be stunned to find, as a matter of fact, that there was no John Doe or Sean Lee or John Smith living in Atlanta, Georgia? If you pull out a phone book from Atlanta, Georgia, if you're ever traveling through that part of the southern United States, you will find Sean Lee, John Smith, and John Doe. You'll find all three of those names living there. But I've been there. I've read the phone book. I have actually looked up John Smith, Jane Doe. Don't ask me why, it's a whole nother story. <laughs> things that university students do for... Things that university students do. <laughs> Just leave it at that. I can say to you that I believe there's a John Doe or a Jane Doe or a John Smith or a Sean Lee living in Atlanta, Georgia. That's my belief. And that belief could be true, in fact. But how do I know it's true? How can I be confident of its truth unless I have held the phone book and I can point to empirical data that shows it actually is the case? You see, you can know something, you can believe something, and that belief might even be a true belief. But it doesn't constitute knowledge. It doesn't constitute understanding if you can't show how that belief is true and how you know it to be true. We're, talk, we're talking about certainty. And you'll notice here in this particular text, this is what Peter is hitting at. Their question here arises from a case of perplexity. The Bible says they were perplexed and they asked, what does this mean? Now, we're going to look at how Peter addresses it, but I want you to jump on down to verse 23. Look at this. Well, sorry, not verse 23, verse 29. Peter responds, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence. Notice that. With confidence about the patriarch David. And then if you jump on down a little bit further to verse 36, where he comes to the end of his sermon, Peter's first Christian sermon, he makes a statement, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. So this sermon that Peter is giving at Pentecost moves from a place of perplexity and confusion where people are experiencing something, but they don't know what to make of it, to where Peter wants them to go, which is that he can make a statement to them with confidence, and out of that confidence, his confidence, they can have certainty. And that's where we are today. When I stand to preach to you, we come to the Word of God so that what is said here week after week is not the opinion of a man, it is the exposition of Scripture. So that the confidence that you have in what is said here week after week is not a confidence in me, not a confidence in what I'm doing up here, but a confidence in what the Word of God is saying. If you want to grow the church deeper spiritually as well as add to the church numerically, 
Peter's example given to us here in Acts chapter 2 is that the preaching of the Word of God is the central, most significant, the only thing, the absolute thing that we have to have if we're going to grow the church. Because what happens when the Word of God is preached is that people move from a place of confusion and uncertainty and doubt to a place of confidence to a place of conviction. Walk with me. They say, what does this mean? Peter could easily stand up and say, listen, I'm not drunk. He starts there. Not the best introduction. I'll admit, as a preacher, if I opened up every sermon with, hey, how are you guys? I'm not drunk. I'm not drunk. After a while, you'd be wondering, well, why does this man have to say that? Uh, Is he, you know, what's going on here? They assert, out of mockery, they say that these guys are drunk. What Peter's going to do is not going to stand up there and say, no, 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 come do a breathalyzer. I'm good. Come smell me. I'm, I'm clean. I'm sober. He's going to skip over all of that. As he say, what you really need to do to understand this experience is to interpret it through the scriptures. And he's going to quote Joel. Joel chapter 2. Don't flip there. Just listen. He makes the statement, this is a this is a quotation from the Septuagint. So if you go to Joel chapter 2, you'll see there are slight differences. But essentially from the Septuagint, Peter's statement is, in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. But before, before the day of the Lord comes, the great, that great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a quotation from Joel chapter 2. And if you've attended John Marlowe's tenet talks on the Old Testament, undoubtedly what John Marlowe shared with you is that the dating of Joel can be nefariously difficult. We don't know anything about this guy. There is, unlike other of the prophets, minor prophets as well as major prophets in the Old Testament, there is within the book of Joel no set, no indictment, no list of grievances against Israel for things that they have failed to do or ways in which they have wandered into idolatry. We don't even know anything about the author. There's no biographical detail. All we know about him is that his name is Joel. So what specific instance he's speaking to it doesn't ever really say. What Joel says all throughout the book of Joel is simply this. There is a day coming. You need to know this, that there is a day coming in which God in heaven is going to come on this earth and he is going to judge all men and women in righteousness. There is a day coming. He refers to it as the day of the Lord. There are certain commitments that are made by God through the prophet Joel, things that will take place before that great and fearful day of the Lord comes. And one of those things is that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. He's going to pour it out on his believers. And he makes the statement, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He's going to quote a number of things, including the sun uh, being darkened and the blood and the moon being turned to blood, so forth and so on. Things that didn't necessarily happen here at Pentecost. But the portion of this that Peter wants to draw our attention to, that he wants to draw their attention to, is that as they're observing all of these people proclaiming the gospel in various languages, 
that what they are seeing is not only the proclamation of the gospel in various languages, but that God is keeping his promise that he made through the prophet Joel. And when God makes a promise and when he's keeping it, we can look at that promise for other details. If he's going to keep the first part of it, surely he's going to keep other parts of it. Now, these are all Jews. They're all raised in good Jewish homes. They've all come to Jerusalem for Passover. They're all here worshiping. They know the scriptures. So Peter doesn't get into an extended discussion on historical context and literary genre and all those types of nitty-gritty things that I sometimes get into. He doesn't even get into the grammar. I love the grammar, though. But Peter doesn't go there because he doesn't need to. They're familiar with it. They know what it says. He starts off with what you're seeing right now in front of your very eyes is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out. Oh, and by the way, where does this particular promise end within the book of Joel? All these things shall come to pass before the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Peter's statement here, what he says to them is, the first part of this prophecy is being fulfilled. And he quotes it all the way down to the second part. Well, if you're a Jew and you know your Bible, what conclusion would you draw? That the day of the Lord is coming. You're immediately filled with a question. What do we do now? What does this mean? The day of the Lord? Messiah? What's going on? You're trying to interpret an experience. Peter gives you a scripture through which you can interpret it. But that's only going to lead to more questions. A number of years ago, I was witnessing at a Starbucks with uh, some friends. And we were talking to these fellows who were, uh, were in the science department. This is at the University of Texas A&M. And they were staunch and devoted uh, adherents of evolution. They didn't believe in creation, didn't believe in intelligent design. And we were sharing with them the gospel and telling them about the fact that we're all sinners and we all need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We all need to be reconciled with the Father. And of course, being committed evolutionists, being uh, science majors that they were, they immediately started to pick apart the Genesis account, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And they went in all of this sort of thing. Primitive man, back in the day, believed that when lightning struck and there was thunder, that the gods up in the heavens were angry and they were fighting with each other. Or maybe that was a god up in the heavens striking a piece of flint. And people in ancient cultures had this view of natural phenomenon. And of course, now we know that when lightning strikes, it's not because there's some god up in heaven striking flint. That is a result of natural uh, processes happening in the weather with meteorology. And we know that thunder is the, the, the auditory response of that, of that bolt of lightning and it travels a little bit slower and so forth and so on. We can explain all of this stuff mathematically and scientifically. And so isn't it true for you silly Christians that you continue to hold on to these primitive ideas that in time will be shown to be just primitive? And of course, I didn't accept any of that argument because... As far as I understand my Bible, there's always been a group of people that have known the truth, that God created the heavens and the earth. Yes, there were civilizations that came up with crazy ideas. But just because there were civilizations that believed silly things doesn't mean that all civilizations held to those same silly things simultaneously. 
In the same way that I'm sitting here in a Starbucks talking to a bunch of scientists who believe in these things, and yet I do not. And their argument was essentially that this is the way of the world. This is how it's always been, so you should be this way. But even in that moment, in that discussion, it was not the way of the world. It was not that way in that moment. It is not that way today. It has never been that way. But what really dismayed me was that my friends who were witnessing that particular day, they began to feel frustrated by the lack of evidence to support the idea of intelligent design as we were trying to share our faith with these committed evolutionists. And so they shifted to an argument that said, well, Jesus has saved me. I was trapped in such and such a sin, but he rescued me from it, and that's my experience. And whatever science may show, you'll never take that experience away from me. Now, that is not a great argument. Because they looked at us, they looked at each other, they gave us that sort of sympathetic, yeah, kind of nod. That's your experience. In the same way that mental patients hear voices and see funny things crawling on the wall. You see, we all have experiences. And just because it's your own personal, individual experience doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. And you and I, when we're sharing our faith, how often do we go to the neighbor next door or the relative and say to them, I need to share with you about Jesus Christ. Look at all the ways he has changed my life. Look at all the ways in which he has made me a better person. I know peace. I know joy. I know happiness. And all of those things can be true. And we share those things with our neighbors and our relatives. And our neighbors and our relatives look back at us and they smile and they nod their head and they say, that's good for you. I am so glad for you that you have found Jesus and that he has made a difference in your life. But as for me, I'm a different person than that. I don't hear voices. I don't see things crawling on the wall. I'm not a lunatic. I'm glad it's working for you that you've had this experience of Jesus. But I don't need that experience. Look at my life. Got a family. Got a house. Got a great job. Things are going well for me. I get a month of vacation every year. I go with my rest of my extended family. We go down to the lake. It's great. I have a great life. I don't need Jesus. Peter has just helped these guys to understand their experience in such a way that they know they need something. And as we are looking at this first evangelistic sermon being preached, make no mistake about it, the gospel that we proclaim is not an optional gospel. The gospel that we proclaim is not a gospel that's good for me and others can take it or leave it as they see fit. 
The gospel that we preach, the gospel that Peter's preaching here, is a gospel that says, you understand this experience of people speaking in tongues and proclaiming the glorious and mighty deeds of God because there is a God. And by the way, this same God who pours out his spirit here and now in this moment, which has transformed our lives, is the same God who has promised through his word that there is a day coming in which he will judge the world in righteousness and Every person, whether they feel like they want it or need it or not, will have Jesus as Lord. You will have him as Lord and Savior. And that is my prayer for all of us. Or you will have him as Lord and Judge. The statement that Peter makes here, because he's anticipating the question, men of Israel, hear the words, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, meaning God showed you who this guy was. God testified to who this guy was. He proved who Jesus was with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him In your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan. Just, I could preach a whole sermon right there. I mean, I might. We might come back to this next week. I don't know. Jesus, his whole life and his whole death and the whole thing there was prophesied about hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years before it happened. When Peter says he was delivered up and crucified according to the definite plan of God, the definite, to be definite, it has to be defined. It has to be articulated. And Peter doesn't get into all of it, but he's going to give a few examples here in just a second. But this much is certain. He's not referencing some obscure thing. Everybody knew there was a Messiah coming. It wasn't clear immediately how to reconcile and harmonize all of these different passages that talk about a suffering servant as well as a conquering king. But this much is true. Peter could say he came according to a defined plan. Plan. Jesus came, and he was delivered up according to this defined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. All of Israel and all of the world, all of us in this room, are responsible for the death of Jesus. Verse 24, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You want to know how you end this sermon? Really easy. You go to the tomb where Jesus' body is supposedly being kept. You grab it. You go back to the temple, which is most likely where Peter is preaching this sermon. You just pitch the body up there on the stage. And you say, oh, what about that, Peter? I'm telling you, it's over. It is done. This movement is being proclaimed by a group of ignorant, uneducated fishermen from backwater towns all around Galilee. There is nothing significant to them. There is nothing about them which would inspire any of us to awe. And the only way you stop this movement is if it's not true. Because the only way this movement gets started is if it's being upheld by the power of God. You want to end Peter's sermon? You just pitch the body of Jesus up there on the stage. It's over. But they can't do that. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. And Peter could have just as easily given you an apologetic similar to what I did, but he doesn't. 
notice how he helps them to see the significance of what is happening to Christ. He doesn't say, hey, here's a good, really, you know, I'm just a low fisherman, and so there's every reason here for you not to believe me. You know, I'm, I'm just this guy from up north, you know. Doesn't do any of that. He says, Jesus was crucified. The plan was defined. He was buried, raised three days later. How should we understand that? He's going to take you back to the scriptures. Look at what he says. This is a quote from Psalm 16. David, I saw the Lord always before me, for he, sat, he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Jesus was crucified. He could not be held by death. The pangs of death were let loose. Quotes the scripture to prove it. Helps him to understand through the scripture what is happening. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. David is the one that wrote Psalm 16. David is the one under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that made the statement, you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Now, authorial intent is crucial. David is writing the psalm. So when David says, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, is David talking about David or is David talking about somebody else? That's the question that has to be answered. That's the question that's crucial to this presentation. And of course, Peter helps him to see exactly the significance of that psalm and what was being said. He said, David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, I can go get David's body, and I can pitch it up here on the stage to prove my point. He takes it to the next step. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned Hades. Nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And of that we are all witnesses. This moment that you're having right now, in which you see us all speaking in tongues, Scripture tells you what this is. But then it leads to a deeper question. If that's what this is, then what has happened? Because we feel like we've missed a crucial part of the story. If God is coming in judgment and we know that God has promised salvation, then when did that salvation happen? It happened when you killed that guy from Nazareth. But we killed that guy from Nazareth. No. You killed him, but he is alive. But even that, you can only fully appreciate from the word of God. He took you to the Word of God to show you what was happening with the tongues thing. He's taking you to the Word of God now to show you what's happening with Jesus. So Jesus worked salvation? Yes. He goes on. Verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In that moment, you have an understanding of what has happened. You came to this experience, 
and you could have interpreted it one of a couple of ways. It's not at all dissimilar to those pictures you see sometimes where if you turn it one way, it looks like a duck. You turn it the other way, it looks like a rabbit. Or there's another one where if you turn it one way, it looks like a really ugly old lady. You flip it upside down, it's actually a beautiful princess. You come to this experience, these guys are speaking in tongues, they're proclaiming the gospel, but they're doing it in so many different languages, it seems like a parlor trick, it seems like a circus show. You can laugh at this and say, these men are drunk. And if you see it that way, you miss out on all that follows. And so when Peter seeks to speak to these guys to help them to try to understand what's really happening, He does not rest on his word. He's a witness. He's giving testimony. He could stand in a court of law. He could say, I saw this happen, and I know Pilate did that, and I was there, and I even denied him three times, and I was there at the prison, you know, blah, 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 blah. He'd go through the whole thing. But what he does instead is so much more instructive for us. It's instructive for me as a preacher, and it's instructive for you as a congregation. If any of us are to believe, faith does not come because I say so. Faith isn't going to come to anybody you share with just because you say so. Faith comes only to those who are presented with the word of God. This is the definition of what it means to be a Christian. Some of you are here today, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I was raised Christian. I'm a Christian because I grew up in a Christian home. None of that makes you a Christian. What constitutes a Christian, Jesus makes it very, very clear. Witnessing to the Pharisees, their concern with his teaching. He is rocking their world. He is undermining their authority. And in John chapter 10, speaking to the Pharisees, Jesus gives them the picture of what constitutes an unbeliever. I told you, and you do not believe. Jesus speaks, the word of God sounds forth, and you don't receive it. That's an unbeliever. Next verse. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I told you, but you don't believe it. My sheep follow me. I can tell you all sorts of things, and you are right to question (laughs) the accuracy of it or the truthfulness of it, because after all, at the end of the day, I'm just a man. But you're not called to follow Joshua Claycamp. And the preaching that takes place in this pulpit or any pulpit should not constitute little more than a personal testimony sprinkled with scripture verses along the way. What it should be is it should be the word of God being proclaimed so that you could hear it, so that you could believe it, so that you could follow Jesus. It can't just be a testimony with little scriptures sprinkled on it. It has to be an in-depth analysis of the text. I'm sorry I'm a grammar nerd, but there's no other way. Because... 
The author has spoken according to rules. Rules of grammar. That means there's no way to really understand the word of God unless you are willing to submit to those same rules to understand the author's intent. Which means that at the end of the day, what strengthens our church, what makes us grow both deeper spiritually as well as adding to us numerically is not Joshua Claycamp or Ryan Blyenberg or any pastor in any church anywhere at any time. And the number one thing that we must have, which we can do, we cannot do without, is the word of Christ being proclaimed to us. And that looks like jumping into the passage, pulling apart the nitty-gritties of it, looking at it, really dwelling on the text. The reason why I say that is because Jesus is king, not me, but Jesus. And if you're to be his sheep, you have to hear him and follow him, not me. These guys weren't sure how to understand their experiences. And I'm sure that all of us, as we go through life, we're going to experience things that we're not sure how to interpret or understand. We're going to ask, where is God in all of this? What is the Lord up to? How am I to understand his faithfulness or his goodness to me or his blessing to me in light of what I'm experiencing? He speaks. He speaks in his word. And we are born from his word in order to walk in his word. Paul makes a statement to the church at Rome. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Faith is necessary to receive this righteousness. It comes from faith, and it is intended to lead us into a deeper walk of faith. So the one thing we must have, the one thing we cannot do without, is the preaching of God's word. Richard Elihu is a Muslim, is a missionary to Muslims in Nigeria. He himself grew up in one of the largest Muslim enclaves in Nigeria. 1970s, nobody really cared about Christianity. There weren't that many missionaries that were in Nigeria at that time. Richard Elihu was a Muslim, but he went and visited the missionaries all the time, not because he actually wanted to hear the gospel, but because they always gave him these pocket New Testaments. And he found that within the pocket New Testament, he could rip out pages of it, and the paper that the pocket New Testament was printed on was perfect for rolling marijuana joints. And he, he, was a poor, he came from a poor family, and so he went and he... he couldn't buy the good paper, so he went and he got a free New Testament from these missionaries to smoke marijuana. One night, Richard Ailey, who testifies that he had a hard time going to sleep, and he had ripped out a couple of pages of a New Testament. He'd stuck them in his pocket earlier that day, and he hadn't used them all up. And so he reached into his pocket, and he pulled out a page of the, New Test- of the Old Testament. It was an Old Testament that he had, and it was a quote from Psalm 31. 34, the one that I read you earlier today. 
Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Up until that point in his life, Richard Elihu had never given any thought about being a Christian. He was raised Muslim. His whole family was Muslim. Muslim, Islam was what they knew. Islam was what they practiced. It was their whole world. Furthermore, he knew that if his dad understood, number one, that he was smoking marijuana, he'd be in trouble. Number two, if his dad knew he was going to get Bibles in order to smoke marijuana, he'd be even in more trouble. There was one thing you just didn't do as a Muslim living in, in this portion of Nigeria in 1978, and that was you didn't go anywhere near the Christian missionaries, and you certainly didn't give any thought to what they said. You dare not take one of their Bibles. Marijuana could be forgiven, but we've entered into a dangerous territory if we're going to toy around with Jesus. And yet, despite all of that, Richard Elihu could not deny that when it came to Muhammad or Allah and his experience of these deities in his life through how he interpreted those experiences from what the Quran taught him, there was no way that he could say that he found anything sweet in these gods. And yet here he is reading a promise from the Christian God. Taste and see that I am sweet. And so he went back and he talked to the Christian missionary who had given him that Bible. And eventually, after many conversations and after wrestling with it, he decided that he would taste. And he prayed. And in that moment, Richard Elihu moved from unbelief to belief. He moved from being a lover of the world to being a lover of God. He moved from the domain of darkness the dominion of Satan to the kingdom of God. And do you know how he did it? It wasn't because a missionary gave him a Bible. It was because God spoke to him through his word. And the way that he came to faith was not because some Christian missionary told him, Jesus has made a wonderful difference in my life because the moment Richard Elihu trusted in Jesus, he was a hunted man. Islam is an honor religion. And he was the first Muslim from his mosque to convert to Jesus, and they wanted to kill him. No, no, no. It wasn't his experience or the experiences of other missionaries that swayed him, and it wasn't this missionary's personal testimony that swayed him. It was the word of God. Church if you would draw nearer to Jesus, if you would draw deeper in your faith, all the testimonies in the world, nice as they are, can never move you to a greater confidence in Christ, more so than the word that he himself speaks to you. And my prayer for you this morning is that you would hope in Christ through what he says. Pray with me. Father, we hear the word week after week after week. Help us to believe it. And Lord, help us to preach it better. Help us more and more to get out of the way so that your word can sound forth with as little interruption as possible. 
Help us to make this place, this sanctuary, a quiet place, free from distraction. Help to make this preacher a better preacher. Help all of us, Lord, from the proclamation to the reception of your word to be more dependent upon you, to recognize that we need you every hour to understand our experiences, to understand those things which are happening to us, which you have brought into our life. Lord, help us to grow more confident and more certain, not in ourselves, but in you. Do that work, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.